are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Hello, and uh, welcome to today's panel, Challenges to the Post-Cold War Order, Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. I'm Scott Radnitz, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. We are here today because the recent saber rattling uh, from Russia with over 100,000 troops amassed around Russia's border has given rise to daily guessing games about what President Putin has in store. There's been constant speculation along the lines of will he or won't he? Rarely has so much depended on what is in a single person's head. But the ongoing events are about more than President Putin's neuroses and grievances. They've also focused attention on unresolved issues from the end of the Cold War. The immediate question result revolves around Ukraine, but the crisis is also about Europe, US-Russia relations, and the post-Cold War security architecture. Further discussions are taking place about energy policy, the economics of sanctions, competing narratives about history, language, and culture, and how great powers engage in bargaining, deterrence, credibility, bluffing, status, and the importance of ensuring that your adversary is able to withdraw while saving face. So observers are playing this guessing game. We follow the manufactured diplomatic drama that's capturing headlines around the world. The latest, Russia requested a written response to its demands from the US. It received it and didn't formally reply in writing, but just today, Putin said, they, the West, their most important task is to contain Russia's development. Ukraine is just an instrument of achieving this goal. It can be done in different ways, such as pulling us into some armed conflict and then forcing their allies in Europe to enact those harsh sanctions against us that are being discussed today in the United States. But then he said, I hope that eventually we will find this solution, though it's not easy, we understand that. These comments are characteristic of the Kremlin's ambiguous position. It's possible that Putin himself has not decided what he'll do, but even if he did, he might have an interest in keeping observers like us confused and befuddled. Let's also remember that this year began with mass protests in Kazakhstan, followed by a Russian-led military alliance being invited in to support a government violent crackdown on the opposition there. Those troops have now left, but this is a reminder that Russia still caused many of the shots in what we used to call its sphere of influence. So hopefully today we can cut through some of this confusion. That's what the panel is for. We'll leave prediction to uh, pundits in the betting markets, but at least we can make sense of the situation for the countries involved and for the people whose lives are directly affected by what happens next. Our speakers will share their expertise about how we got here, the motivations of the various actors, the stakes involved, and how different scenarios might play out in Ukraine, in Russia, the rest of Europe, and in the broader post-Soviet region. Because the post-Cold War order, for lack of a better term, may not be as settled as we had assumed. So we have uh, three speakers who will share their insights today. I've asked them to speak for 15 minutes. Our first speaker today is Carol Williams, who is a retired foreign correspondent who covered revolution and war for 30 plus years for the Associated Press and Los Angeles Times. She's been awarded more than a dozen international honors, including a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 1994. Retired from mainstream journalism, she curates World Briefing by C.J. Williams on Twitter, 
writes for an affairs commentary uh, for the Seattle website Post Alley and speaks on press freedom and foreign policy at events held by civic groups, libraries, and her alma mater, the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. Kara Williams. Thank you. Well, Scott asked me to talk a bit today about why now? Why is Putin insisting on regaining control and influence in Ukraine, a country that really doesn't want to have anything to do with his Russia? There's no credible threat to Russia from Russia's security posed by Ukraine. Um, Russia's population and its armed forces are more than three times the size of Ukraine's. It has 17 times the land mass, and it has the only nuclear weapons in two, two former Soviet republics. And the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization that Scott just referred to as having intervened in Kazakhstan last month, it provides reinforcements to its seven member states in the event of some security threat. We saw how that worked in Kazakhstan. Um, so that's another instrument of defense and protection that Putin has at his disposal, short of trying to take over other countries. Um, the only object objective I can see for this threatened invasion is Putin needs a distraction from his domestic woes, especially from the COVID crisis that rages unabated. Russia has one of the lowest vaccination rates among developed countries, a spiraling death rate, and a population defying government efforts to halt the spread even worse than in our country. Um, Russia's insistence that NATO deny Ukraine membership in the alliance to de-escalate is also a ruse. Ukraine's prospects for joining the Western Defense Alliance are slim in the long run and non-existent in the foreseeable future. Putin knows this because he's created the biggest obstacle to Ukraine's accession by destabilizing the two provinces in eastern Ukraine and annexing the strategic Crimean pen Peninsula. A state that has unresolved territorial disputes with neighboring countries isn't eligible for NATO membership. Kiev is also at least a decade away from eradicating corruption and meeting other economic and military investment standards. It's perplexing that Putin would stage this provocation on Ukraine's border when the start of operation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is in the balance. One of the things holding up operational authorization of the pipeline is that the European authorities determine that the pipeline bypassing Ukraine will not exacerbate tensions in the region. One reason I think we find ourselves you know, confounded by Russia's behavior stems from a failure of vision among the architects of German unification and NATO expansion 30 years ago and onward. There was such euphoria over the disintegration of Soviet domination of Eastern Europe after 1989 that no one at that time could envision this revanchist hostility taking root in the Kremlin again. Gorbachev had a lot of internal enemies of perestroika and glasnost, but his renunciation of the use of force against allied states breaking from the pack was what his Western colleagues in the two plus four talks toward reunification took to be a credible promise of Soviet acceptance of that reality. I think the atmosphere of triumph blinded the negotiators to the possibility of a Kremlin leader emerging who wanted to roll back the clock to a Stalinist era. 
I want to take you all back to November 1989, when the forced unity of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union fell apart. When the Berlin Wall opened, it created a shockwave across the peoples behind the Iron Curtain. The wall didn't fall under pressure from an angry mob. It wasn't a negotiated removal of an impediment to free movement, although there were demonstrations across East Germany at that time throughout the summer and fall, pushing for more freedom to travel and less state intrusion into people's personal lives. The Berlin Wall in this time before cell phones and the internet was seen as an immovable object that would separate East from West forever. In the apt words of Robert E. Coughlin, the the wall seemed as permanent as a mountain range. That sense of division's inevitability came crashing down on the night of November 9th. The Berlin Wall was thrown open not by design, but by accident. It happened because because of a bungled announcement by an East German Politburo member about some easing of foreign travel restrictions. Gunter Schabowski announced at a press conference that was aired on the nightly news that the borders between East Germany and the West were open. And when pressed to say when that would happen, he said, with immediate effect, mit sofort Entwicklung. Journalists at the press conference and East Berliners who live near the wall wandered out over to see what was going on at the border crossings. People left their kids in their apartment alone because they expected to be back home in 15, 20 minutes. The gates were closed, but there was a lot of activity with border guards scurrying around and their commanders and on the phone. The crowds grew to thousands, demanding to be let out. Finally, the commander at one border crossing called a superior and was told that, yes, Shabowski had indeed said that the border crossings were open now. So he told his guards to open the gates and the thousands just flooded into West Berlin like a human river. They were the first of what would be 4 million East Germans who came into West Berlin over that long weekend. You've all seen the pictures, you know, Germans dancing on the wall from both sides, throwing flowers at border guards, singing and passing around bottles of champagne in the biggest and most joyous street party any of us had ever witnessed. As word spread across the country, the roads were thronged with these shabby little plastic-bodied Trabants and Vartburgs. They poured through Checkpoint Charlie, greeted by a phalanx of West Germans in tears, you know, passing Deutschmarks and cups of champagne through the open car windows. The East Germans were slack-jawed and you know, wide-eyed at the sight of a city that 12 hours earlier they had no idea they would ever visit in their lifetimes. They were cheered on by the West. And you know, I still get choked up when I see that film of the cars coming through Checkpoint Charlie and people patting the roofs like, you know, to say, good job. (laughs) Um, It sounds like the epitome of naivete now, but that long weekend made a reality of the hyperbolic calls by Western politicians for a Europe whole and free. And we could feel the eruption of history all around us. As journalists, we're supposed to keep our personal thoughts and emotions to ourselves, but Every one of us was in tears that whole weekend. We knew that this was the most consequential moment in history that we were going to experience. In that atmosphere, it was unimaginable that we could ever return to the frightening threat of nuclear powers poised for a war that could lead to annihilation. The hardline coup against Gorbachev was still two years away when the pro-democracy fever swept Eastern Europe in late 1989. 
The August 1991 coup was the final blow to the mirage of a unified empire and accelerated the breakup of the Soviet Union at the end of that year. For Russia's people, the experience of liberation was not the joyful escape from oppression felt by the Eastern Europeans two years earlier. Gorbachev disappeared from the world stage, sent into de facto retirement when his country was disbanded out of existence. There was chaos and economic collapse, food shortages, and widespread breakdown of distribution of goods and services. Putin has cast Russia's, Russians suffering as the fault of Western adversaries. In fact, the pressure for NATO expansion was driven by the former Soviet allied states, not a Western recruitment effort. Today's reinvigorated conflict returns to the issue of sovereignty and an independent country's right to choose its own allies. This is something Putin rejects. He remains in the grip of an ideology that might makes right. And I think even if he does launch an invasion, if it fails, that will only add to the Kremlin leaders perceived injustices at the hands of Western powers. So I think we're in for a fairly difficult period, no matter what happens in Ukraine in the next couple of weeks or months. Okay, thank you very much. Our next speaker is Oksana Chevelle, who is an associate professor of political science at Tufts University, where her research and teaching focus on Ukraine and the post-Soviet region. She's the author of the award-winning Migration, Refugee Policy, and State Building in Post-Communist Europe. She's a member of Ponar's, the Ponar's Eurasia Scholarly Network, a country expert on Ukraine for the Global Citizenship Observatory, and an associate of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute and of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. She currently serves as the president of the American Association for Ukrainian Studies and vice president of the Association for the Study of Nationalities. Oksana. Thank you very much, Scott, for the introduction and for inviting me uh, to contribute um, to this panel. Um, I will talk about the current crisis uh, through the lens of Ukrainian domestic political developments. And what I would argue are misperceptions about these developments that exist on the part of Russia and also on the part of some Western um, analysts. Um, I think attention to the Ukrainian political domestic process can help us to better understand uh, both the origins of the current crisis, um, and it's more or less likely resolutions, including uh, probabilities uh, of the Russian invasion. So let me unpack these things a little bit. Um, so as we all know, you know, as Putin said himself many times, Russia supposedly um, wants to assert its sphere of influence and leverage over Ukraine. This is an important, maybe not the only one, but certainly an important cause of the current crisis. So let me start very briefly with a very brief background regarding this leverage that Russia has had um, over Ukraine. Uh, many of you, even if you're not experts on Ukraine, have probably heard characterization of post-Soviet Ukraine as a so-called divided country, divided between supposedly pro-Western and more ethno-linguistically Ukrainian, uh, West and center of the country, and more pro-Russian and ethno-linguistically Russian um, East uh, and South of the country. Uh, those of us who study Ukraine um, in social sciences uh, have spent many pages and many books and articles sort of analyzing these divisions and complicating them. So these divisions are much more complex and more interesting, I would say, than some kind of clear line separating the East and the West. I'm not going to go into these complexities because the broader reality um, is, and that's, I think, what's important, um, that there has been quite substantial and remained um, up until 2014, a very substantial, what we can say, Russia-friendly electorate um, in Ukraine, which gave Russia natural leverage in, over the country. 
this electoral geography produced patterns in repeat elections in Ukraine, and unlike in Russia and other authoritarian states in the former Soviet Union, Ukraine had very competitive, if often quite messy elections, so presidents regularly lost power. So basically, we had this broader pattern of pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian presidents alternating, coming to power in alternating fashion. So essentially, a president would get elected, drawing support primarily either from southeast or center-west of the country, then will inevitably disappoint voters by failing to deliver on the promises of anti-corruption, economic reforms, um, and so forth, would get them kicked out in the next elections and replaced by the opposition coming from the other region of the country. So essentially, pro-Western presidents replaced pro-Russian, and that has been a broader pattern since 91. This pattern, importantly, didn't change even after 2004 so-called Orange Revolution, when mass protests deprived Yanukovych for the first time of the presidency. Uh, there has been a period of domestic instability, elites jockeyed for power, but essentially they can, you know, the, the southern um, and eastern and um, the victorious sort of more pro-Western Yushchenko camp. Um, and then, you know, in another five years, Yushchenko disappointed voters and Yanukovych came to power in between elections. So the, my point here is that Ukrainian elect electoral realities and electoral geography gave Russia natural leverage um, over in, in, in and over Ukrainian domestic politics. And that, of course, was not the only form of leverage. We can think, you know, of additional leverage by economy, by the oligarchs, Ukraine's dependence on Russian natural gas, penetration of Russian media, large audience media, TVs through Ukrainian public space and so forth. So if we fast forward to 2013-2014, when Yanukovych gets driven out of power for the second time, um, right, is ousted by the Euromaidan protests, what has changed in Ukraine? And I would ac actually argue that this not that much changed, broadly speaking, or would have changed. NATO membership, um, right, as already the first speaker alluded, uh, was really not on the table, not only that there was little appetite or no appetite among NATO members themselves to admit Ukraine. In Ukraine, there was very limited popular support. Uh, it, it hovered at around 20, at best 25%. Electoral geography also did not change. Euromaidan had lopsided support. It was more supported in central um, and western Ukraine than in southern and eastern Ukraine. And it is more likely than not, I would argue, that had uh, Putin been do what he did with Crimea and Donbass um, in 2014, um, in 2019, uh, a more pro-Russian president would have been elected. So pro-Western president that came to power in 2014 would have disappointed voters, and we kind of would have broadly seen the same, the same pattern, right? So the Russian leverage did not disappear, and it would have continued to influence developments in Ukraine, including to achieve its stated objective of no NATO membership in Ukraine, and Ukraine being at least to substantial degree, um, influenced by Russia, or Russia be having ability to influence Ukraine. Now, of course, we know that that's not what happened. So after Euromaidan protests um, threw Yanukovych out of power, instead of continuing to use the levers that Russia had, Putin moves uh, supposedly again to protect its interests, prevent NATO encroachment and all of these things, to annex Crimea and instigate separatist insurgency in eastern Donbas region. I would say that this was a major miscalculation for Russia first and foremost, and it, instead of preventing, it actually accelerated Ukraine's move away from Russia. Two specific things I think are important um, in this light to realize what actually this uh, 2014 Russian aggression changed in Ukraine. So first of all, it cut off millions, about 12% of the Ukrainian electorate, the most pro-Russian electorate in Crimea and in Eastern Donbass from the Ukrainian political electoral process. So now, even mathematically speaking, it is much harder, potentially impossible for a pro-Russian candidate to win national level elections. 
And secondly, um, this aggression of 2014 also turned public opinion elsewhere in Ukraine, including in traditionally pro-Russian or Russia-friendly southern and eastern parts of the country, much more negative towards Russia and Russia-led alliances, political and economic ones, and much more positive towards NATO. So as I said, if before 2014, at best 25%, it was more usually around 20 or so percent supported NATO membership. Now the support is well over half of the population. The recent poll from November 2014, before this current troop built up nationwide had 54% of the population in favor of NATO and 28% against. I would guess like if the polling was done now, it may be even higher. Uh, the changes in the South and East are especially profound. There is still regional divide, meaning there is more support, uh, more enthusiasm for NATO in the West and the Central than in the South. But in, in the South and the East, this also support grew quite substantially. Recent research by Ola Onu, um, a social scientist working on Ukraine and who, who does a lot of survey work in Ukraine through this Mobilize project that she leads, uh, found out that from 2019 to 2021, support almost doubled in southern and eastern regions of Ukraine for NATO. Right. So, so to my mind, this is really ironic. Um, and I'm going to come to sort of why, you know, as, as, at least potentially explanation, part of the explanation why actually Putin acts this way, right? But it is really ironic, I think, that Russia's actions actually produced exactly the consequences Russia wanted to avoid. It actually made NATO support greater and kind of pro-Russian sentiment smaller in Ukraine. And um, Russia, and, and to some extent, some geopolitical analysis of Ukraine as well, basically make a mistake of seeing Ukraine as deprived of agency and sort of basically a puppet um, or potentially an actor that could be influenced by great powers, right? So in other words, what's happening in Ukraine, sort of looking through this geopolitical optics is this great power struggle, and it really underestimates the importance of domestic political process. And in case of Russia, particularly two things I think are important. One, that Russia really overestimates the role that US has played in Ukrainian development. And um, that basically leads to dismissal of domestic drivers of political outcomes, including the drivers, kind of ironically, that were working in Russia's favor. And the second thing that I think Russia is dismissing about Ukraine are these changing popular attitudes that do not fit in Russia's, or maybe I should say in Putin's view, and I think we should take him seriously at his word. He has, you know, went as far as writing a 5,000 word essay about it this summer, that Ukrainians and Russians are really one nation, that they're destined to be together sort of by right, by virtue of some mythical power of history, blood, culture, and so forth, right? And again, sort of that leads to the dismissal of uh, public attitudes that do not fit this worldview. So let me elaborate on this a little bit. Sort of this um, idea that US is omnipotent in orchestrating events in Ukraine, including 2004 Euromaidan uprising, the fall of Yadukovych, um, disregards domestic drivers of these outcomes. Those of us who have studied these protests, um, maybe we'll get to talk about Kazakhstan protests later on, but certainly, you know, studies of Ukrainian political protest shows that the, the West was much less important and domestic drivers were much more important um, than Russia chooses to believe. And if Russia, again, sort of to, not to belabor this point, but if it took domestic politics seriously, it should have recognized that even after Yanukovych was driven out of power, not much has changed. Um, as far as domestic political sort of underpinnings of, of outcomes in Ukraine, Euromaidan had lopsided support, pro-Russian electorate remained substantial, elites were open to continued shady deals, influence from Russia, right? So again, you know, the levers of continued influence were there. Now, the second um, point to sort of the second, maybe you can say logical 
pathway in Putin's thinking stems from this belief that Ukraine and Russia are really one nation, that Ukraine is quote-unquote not a real state and somehow a natural part of Russia. Putin said it himself many times. And as, a real, as, as not a real nation and state, Ukraine is basically deprived of independent agency. And evidence that goes against it is dismissed. Um, just recently at the Valdai summit, when Putin was asked this question, how does, you know, what does he make of the fact that public opinion in Ukraine has turned against Russia and you no know, more in favor of NATO and so forth, he basically dismissed these polls as not reflecting true preferences of Ukrainian people. His narrative is that people are afraid to express their true preferences because they're ruled by this quote-unquote fascist junta, and real Ukrainians are basically all pro-Russian, they're just not saying that, right? So again, we sort of see this quite on the one hand self-serving, but also quite dangerous and factually incorrect perception, right, that the evidence that goes against what Putin thinks Ukrainian and Ukrainians really should be thinking, right, is dismissed. Now, sort of to wrap up, this, this brings me to the current crisis. So what do we have now? Like, what does this all mean for the situation that we have today? Of course, none of us, and certainly not me, are in a position to make any predictions as to what Putin will or will not do. But I would argue that given this domestic political landscape in Ukraine, that I have outlined and changes in this landscape since 2014, I would say a success of a military action by Russia to achieve its goals of bringing Ukraine into its fold are really unlikely without a full and sustained occupation of Ukraine. And that is obviously very costly, which I would say make invasion potentially avoidable. And maybe this is why when Ukrainian president and other top officials recently have been downplaying US warnings of an imminent Russian invasion, I think it may be rooted in appreciation of implications of Ukrainian domestic realities for potential invasion scenarios. So let me just say a couple of words on this and then I'll wrap up, right? Now, Russia, of course, can use its military might to defeat Ukrainian army um, at the cost of thousands of lives on both sides, right? But then it would still face a challenge of controlling the territory and ruling the population that is now largely hostile and can only become more so in the face of an open aggression. Polls from December of this year um, would ask people what would they do in the case of Russian invasion. 50% nationwide are prepared to resist. Of them, 33% with arms and another 25% resist actively but without arms. These figures are as high as 30% um, in the south and in the 26 in the east, respectively. Of course, we don't know what percent will actually resist. It could be less, but it could also be more because some people who are sort of incredulous, apolitical, otherwise undecided, if you know rockets fly into Ukraine and tanks roll across the border, we're really going to have a hostile reaction. So what that basically means that I think these scenarios that we have seen circulated in the press, including kind of rule from afar by, by virtue of some proxy pro-Russian government following military blitzkrieg would be very difficult, if not to say completely illusionary. Um, as long as the West remains unambiguously condemning sanction and sanctioning Russian aggression, I think Ukrainian current leadership only stands to, not to fall, but to gain support from this rally around the flag phenomenon in the face of naked aggression. If Zelensky government were to fall in the face of protests um, against uh, military defeat, I think it would only stand to be replaced by even more anti-Russian, more nationalistic government. And if some kind of pro-Russian puppet government was designated and appointed by Russia, it will have essentially zero support from either the public, any government institution or elite group. And how would this government rule in the absence of a modicum of legitimacy? I think it could only be with sustained military backing from Russia, which again would mean lengthy occupation, hundreds of thousands of troops committed and so forth, right? So again, 
is Russia prepared to engage in this protracted bloody war, face massive sanctions, internationalization, and still ultimately not be able to achieve its goal of controlling Ukraine without full occupation? I don't know the answer to this question, or ultimately only Putin does, but again, I would say that attack, um, right, um, maybe even he appreciates the cost and uncertain prospects, and this is why I think when Zelensky downplays the threat of um, imminent invasion, there is something, you know, there are some reasons to think that way. So I think I'll end here for the sake of time. There are, of course, more things to discuss. We could think of comparisons between 2014, when Russia uh, did achieve some of its objectives conquering certain parts of Ukrainian territory, so to what's different now, what other scenarios short of full invasion we can think about, role of potentially Minsk peace process as maybe some part of a solution to the current crisis, but I'll leave it to Q&A, and I'll thank the audience um, and the organizers again for inviting me to speak. Thank you. Thank you, Oksana. Our third speaker is Dmitry Gorenberg an expert on security issues in the former Soviet Union, Russian military reform, Russian foreign policy, and ethnic politics and identity. His recent research topics include decision-making processes in the senior Russian leadership, Russian naval strategy in the Pacific and the Black Sea, and Russian maritime defense doctrine. Gorenberg is the author of Nationalism for the Masses, Minority Ethnic Mobilization in the Russian Federation. In addition to his role at CNA, he currently serves as editor of Problems of Post-Communism and is an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. And thanks for uh, inviting me to speak here. Um, so my task is to talk a little bit about the Russian side uh, of this equation, particularly uh, its uh, military and strategic aims. Uh, and I'll get to some other uh, issues, including Kazakhstan towards the end. So, uh, I think it's important to, to uh, connect that as well. Uh, so I'm going to start by just talking about what Russian forces look like uh, around Ukraine, and then I'll get to the, to the aims uh, towards the end. Uh, so right now, Russian forces near Ukraine uh, total more or less uh, you know, 70 battalion tactical groups. Uh, and then some additional support elements. So what's a battalion tactical group? It's, a, uh, it's a basically a combined arms formation uh, that's organized for a specific task and it averages uh, around 800 personnel in size. So that's, well, that's one group. So uh, there's about 70 of them that translates into more or less 56,000 combat troops. And then you add the various supporting units and the total number of Russian troops uh, is probably approaching around 100,000. Uh, and then in addition to those kind of regular ground troops, you have uh, about 15,000 or so separatist forces in the Donbass. Uh, so you can add those in. Uh, and, and there's also, so, so, uh, uh, and there's also naval and air force elements as well. So, so what that means is that approximately 40% of Russia's total available uh, BTGs, uh, Battalion Tactical Groups again, uh, uh, 70 out of 168, uh, are, are currently stationed near the Russian border, uh, sorry, near the Ukrainian border. Um, that's, that's a lot, uh, obviously. Uh, the forces that are deployed, uh, let's say, I'm counting as forces within about 125, 200 miles of the Ukrainian border. And they so they fall into two categories. There's, there are the divisions and brigades that are permanently stationed in the area, and that's about half the number of, of, the, of the total force, uh, and then uh, of the combat force, and most of the supporting uh, ground troops in the area. Uh, and then the second set of forces, the other half of the combat troops, are forces that have been temporarily deployed.
uh, near Ukraine's border from uh, formations that are usually based elsewhere uh, in Russia. And these include armies that are based in the North Caucasus, uh, units that are uh, from uh, outside of Moscow, those in the St. Petersburg region, uh, and units based quite far away, even as far as the Far East uh, in Buryatia. So, so the, uh, the Russian military has brought troops from basically all over the country uh, to uh, be located around Ukraine. Uh, and the addition of all of these forces more than doubles uh, Russia's offensive potential near Ukraine. So, and some of these forces have been deployed relatively recently. Some have actually been there since last spring. Uh, so the 41st Combined Arms Army uh, has been in, uh, uh, in the region since last April, uh, and it's at uh, 1,800 miles from where it's normally, normally based. Uh, and most recently, uh, 15 to 20 or so but, uh, BTGs have been moved from the Russian Far East into the region, mostly to Belarus. Uh, and that's 50% of the Eastern military district's combat. Potential. Uh, uh, so the reason I'm kind of going through all this is just to show that Russia's really kind of this is kind of an unprecedented level of military deployment for Russia uh, to one region. Uh, in addition to all these ground forces, Russia also has a significant uh, naval presence uh, in the Black Sea that uh, could also potentially be used if there were an invasion. So a good portion of the Black Sea fleet is out on exercises in the Black Sea, uh, which show a demonstration that they're ready for action. Uh, there are six additional uh, amphibious landing ships that are on their way to the Black Sea from the Northern and Baltic fleets. Uh, and those ships could be used together with the Black Sea fleet forces uh, in a potential amphibious operation, either near Mariupol in the Azov Sea or, or near Odessa. So, so there's, there's a lot of options. And, and that's, that's really the key. So we know what the, where the forces are located and approximate numbers, but the way they've been positioned by the Russian military uh, gives it a, a variety of options of, how, of what it might be able to do. So it could help, uh, uh, undertake a limited operation in Eastern Ukraine, sort of Donbass 3.0 or something like that. Uh, uh, it could also pretty rapidly deploy to try to occupy the Eastern half of the country, uh, maybe all the way to the Dnieper River. Uh, it could also move from the north. Now it has those forces in, in Belarus. It could move from the north and try to encircle Kiev. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, there are forces that are, the forces that are based in Crimea together with the Black Sea uh, naval forces could launch an operation to occupy the south, potentially cutting Ukraine off uh, from the sea. So, so there's, a, there's a wide variety of potential options from the most limited to really a wholesale invasion that the, uh, that the Russian military uh, uh, is prepared uh, to, to, to carry out just in terms of how they're positioned and the supporting elements and so forth. Uh, there's a question of how can the uh, Ukrainian military respond to this? Now, the Ukrainian military is much stronger now than it was in 2015. Uh, back then, uh, it was uh, not only had it been neglected for a long time, but it was also uh, operating in a conditions where command and control was unclear, where the new government didn't really uh, quite know what it was doing yet. It had just come into power uh, just the month, you know, that month or a month before. And, and even, even as we went into the summer of 2014, it was still sort of getting its bearings in terms of the military side. Uh, 
so so that's why there were a lot of volunteer battalions that were fighting in uh, in in the Donbas in, in, in 2014. So Ukrainian military is much better now. It's much better organized. It's much more battle hardened. It has gotten assistance and training from the West. No doubt about that. The problem is that the Russian military is also much better than it was uh, seven years ago. Uh, it's taken, it, it's, it's improved its armaments, it's improved its command and control, it's improved its mobility, uh, it's uh, really gotten into uh, UAVs and sort of drone technology for targeting and things like that. So, so uh, precision guided uh, weapons are much uh, larger part of its uh, arsenal than, it, than they were then. So there's, there's a whole range of ways in which the Russian military is better now. So, so that gap between the R Russian capabilities and Ukrainian capabilities is probably no smaller now uh, than it was in 2015. Um, and, that's a, and that's a problem for, for, for Ukraine. Uh, and the biggest, and, and as far as the capabilities, the biggest problem for Ukraine is that its air defenses and air forces are quite weak. So Russia would quickly achieve air superiority uh, in the event of a, of a fight. And this would make it very difficult for Ukrainian forces to resist uh, a large scale invasion. Uh, so, so some military analysts argue that it might be better off, in fact, just if in the event of a large scale invasion, the Ukrainian military might be better off just doing an organized retreat back to the Dnieper and setting up resistance units to cause pain to a potential Russian occupation rather than losing their forces in a very unequal fight. Um, uh, however, and here I, I very much uh, agree with Oksana, uh, I think Russia's primary goal is unlikely to be occupation. Uh, what Russia is looking for is to use that military victory uh, to achieve political aims. So let me, what are those political aims? Uh, I think Russia has two primary goals in this confrontation, they're kind of overlapping. Uh, first of all, they want to have a firm say uh, over Ukraine's foreign policy and internal governance. And second, they want to block further NATO expansion uh, and end uh, Ukrainian defense cooperation uh, with NATO me members. So what does this mean in practice? Uh, Russia has had a long declared red line that Ukraine's membership in NATO is unacceptable. Uh, and as uh, previous speakers have indicated, that's been kind of more or less off the table for the last uh, several years, certainly since, since uh, uh, 2014 and really before that as well. Um, the problem for Russia is that recent developments have made it clear uh, that Ukraine is rapidly becoming a de facto NATO outpost, even without membership, uh, from, from, again, from the Kremlin's perspective. Uh, so, uh, so, and Russia wants to end. So they want no NATO trainers, uh, no NATO military assistance, no joint exercises, and so forth. What they're seeing is just a constant kind of stream or rotation of uh, pers military personnel from NATO member countries coming into Ukraine, uh, essentially from their point of view, making Ukraine uh, uh, just uh, just uh, you know an ally in all but name uh, from um, uh, of of, the, of Washington and, and other NATO countries. So. Uh, Ukraine is kind of in this in in, the, in this very unfortunate position for, for Ukraine uh, of being seen by Moscow as being part of NATO without having the benefit of NATO security guarantees. So it's kind of uh, kind of in this uh, worst of both worlds uh, in that way. 
Um, now, based on its past experience with uh, Minsk Accords, uh, the Russian leadership believes that Ukrainian promises can't be trusted. So the Minsk Accords, uh, Ukraine, uh, Kiev pr promised uh, a bunch of, uh, to, to carry out a bunch of actions. Moscow pr uh, promised various things as well. But from Moscow's point of view, Ukraine hasn't carried out its, its, its promises. And so what they want to do is to install a government in Kiev that is less hostile to Russia, uh, either pro-Russia or at least neutral. Uh, uh, now, this may be very difficult to achieve uh, without occupation for the reasons that Oksana spelled out, uh, uh, and that, and the and, 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 and of course, an occupation brings uh, high risks in terms of potential resistance and various financial and political costs of controlling a hostile population uh, over a large territory. So another possibility is partition. Uh, so with a pro-Russian government in Eastern and Southern Ukraine, and then leaving the more anti-Russian regions aside. Now, I know that polling has indicated that Eastern and, and, and Southern Ukraine is much, uh, is no longer so pro-Russian, but I'm, but the problem is that I'm, as, as uh, has been indicated, uh, I'm not sure that's believed in Moscow. And so the, the perception, even if Ukrainians are really, committed to resisting, if Moscow doesn't believe that they're committed to resisting, they may carry out that invasion and expect much less pain than they're going to get. And so uh, misperceptions are often a cause of war, unfortunately. Um, let me just say uh, one word about timing. Uh, a lot of the temporarily, uh, of the temporarily uh, located forces uh, are on Ukraine's borders are currently just pre-positioned equipment. It's cheaper to keep troops uh, at the bases be until the decision is made and then uh, to, to uh, attack and then fly them in. Uh, and that can be done quite rapidly. Uh, there's, there's still some units on the way as well. So I'm guessing that if there is a decision to invade, and I think that decision hasn't been made, but if there is a decision to invade, it, it's going to come after the Olympics, uh, in part for because things are still getting set up and in part because I don't think uh, Putin wants to spoil uh, Beijing's uh, Olympics party a second time after having done that in 2008. Uh, now, there are alternative scenarios. Uh, the Ukrainian government, as we've heard on, in the media, and the, and the majority of Russian analysts as well, think that war will not happen. Uh, Putin is they believe that Putin is just trying to get concessions through a buildup. Uh, I think this is possible, uh, but, but not likely. The manner of the, in that Russia has engaged in diplomacy suggests that this diplomacy isn't serious. It's been very confrontational. It's been very public. And that's just, uh, it just seems like it's more for show rather than actually trying to get a deal. Uh, so what I think is that open war might be avoided if Putin is somehow convinced that the costs uh, of, a, of, of fighting uh, are gonna be too high, uh, primarily in terms of economic pain for Russia, but also in, in that, uh, in terms of resistance from Ukrainians. So that the more that uh, that that information about uh, Ukraine's willingness to uh, Ukrainians willingness to resist uh, is is actually gets to him, I think the the, the more doubts there will be. Uh, so so that's kind of where Ukraine is. Let me just in a minute or two uh, say a little bit about Kazakhstan since we it is in, in the panel title. Um, so my understanding of what happened in Kazakhstan 
is that it began, uh, the situation began with genuine protests, primarily in the Western regions. And then uh, the president, Tokayev, used these protests to uh, try to eliminate the previous presidents, the founders, uh, Nazarbayev's uh, family, uh, from positions of influence that they had in, uh, in, in, uh, throughout government. Uh, the family responded by launching violent attacks in Almaty with collusion from uh, local security forces, which they had control of, uh, as part of an effort to remove Tokayev and restore their own position. And then Tokayev responded with force uh, and uh, got external support from Putin and the CSTO as a signal to elites and to the uh, security services that uh, they had better uh, stop this and, and come over on his side. So, uh, so, so this outside military force and Russian intervention uh, is, in this uh, scenario is primarily a signaling device. Uh, uh, to, to the security services to disengage from this effective coup attempt. Uh, now it's been very beneficial for Russia because it shows uh, that it's willing to stand up for the rulers of uh, friendly states. Uh, it reinforces a message that was already sent in Belarus when Russia uh, reaffirmed its support for Lukashenko during the protests there. But now they've actually backed that up with deploying forces, not just threatening to. So one more little step to show that they, that, if you're if you're on our side in the uh, former Soviet Union, we will we will support you. Uh, it also means that Tokayev now owes his position to some extent to to Russia, and that can be used uh, as some kind as some kind of leverage in the future when some favor is needed or some or some something else. So overall, the kind of the deployment of CSTO forces and Russian forces primarily uh, was really um, uh, kind of a no-brainer for, for the Kremlin. It was low cost and, and uh, potentially high reward operations. So it made sense and it kind of reinforces that message that Russia is also trying to send in Ukraine uh, that the, this is our sphere of influence uh, in, the, in the former Soviet Union. So I'll stop there and I'm looking forward to, uh, to questions. Thank you very much. Uh, great, now uh, we're in the uh, Q&A part of the panel. We have a few questions already. <clears throat> I'm just gonna start off um, with one of my own that touches upon um, some issues that everybody's talked about so far. So my question has to do with how this might all end and what's the best case scenario. So we've heard about um, both Exxon and Dima uh, have, have mentioned how costly a full occupation would be to Russia and Ukraine and potentially even um, endangering the Putin regime itself. Meanwhile, the West has done a pretty good job of uh, sticking together, of, of um, promising punishing economic sanctions if Russia were to invade um, deterrence by, by adding forces uh, into Eastern European NATO countries. So let's say for the, for the sake of argument that Putin really is deterred, that maybe he had a plan um, for exercising power in order to exercise a de facto veto over Ukrainian foreign policy, but then he realizes that it would be just too costly and it's time to give up. But here's the problem. We know from international relations theory and from human psychology that it's difficult for a leader who has made maximalist demands like Putin has, somebody in his position, to simply turn tail and walk away. So the key is to find some way to allow him to save face, which means to get some kind of concession 
which is acceptable to both NATO countries and to Ukraine. We haven't, I haven't heard much discussion of this in the media. There's a lot of talk about deterrence and, and punishment, but no talk about how you can allow um, this, this authoritarian leader whose legitimacy rests on, on, this, right, on the appearance of power to save face. So what, what could that be? What would that look like? I, so this is open to anybody. Maybe I'll start just like not to um, appear. I mean, I think there is a potential scenario, right? I, I don't think it's very realistic, but since, you know, Russians have been insisting all along that they have no plans to invade, right? I mean, this whole narrative is that they're there for the exercises, right? I mean, you can imagine, again, hypothetically, a scenario when, say, there are some concessions along the lines that the West was already indicating as, in, you know, some missile, you know, control uh, initiatives, potentially, you know, the training that Dima was alluding to, you know, if like it's either scaled down or there is some sort of joint monitoring, right, this confidence building measures, right, Russia, you know, is being listened to in a way that, you know, they say they haven't been listened to before and taking into account that the Russian state has full control of large audience media in Russia, right, like, and they have been spinning some pretty, you know, to outside observers, like a fantastic narrative, you know, for a while. I mean, it is not inconceivable, you know, if say Putin made this decision to spin a narrative that like, look, you know, we never planned to invade, we were doing these exercises, now the West agreed, you know, to whatever, like, you know, potentially, as you're saying, we, uh, that they, it seems like the West is indicating it is willing to agree, right? And that's sort of where it ends. I think that's unlikely. But it is possible, right? Like I think exactly sort of this um, irony in a way of having you know control of large audience media that can shape public opinion in certain ways, right? And there is, I think that's another important maybe constraint on Putin's actions we haven't really talked about. There is not particularly much appetite in Russia for this incursion against Ukraine, which is very different with Crimea in 2014. So again, as I don't think that is very realistic, but I think it is possible had Putin made this sort of decision. Yeah. Uh, Carol, do you want to go ahead? I was just going to say, I think he's make, Putin's making it harder for himself to back off because he's already rejected some very you know, reasonable off ramps that have been discussed. The idea of you know, reinvigorating the INF talks, the START II treaty, you know, more transparency on both sides, military operations, you know, exercises that would you know, expose what's really going on if it is just practice um, and, and just kind of bring down the temperature. But he rejected or his, you know, negotiators did Lavrov and the others when they had that series of diplomatic, you know, gatherings in Europe a couple of weeks ago. I think, you know, it's not in Putin's personality to just say, okay, never mind, you know, and back off. On the other hand, he controls the media in his country. So if he just wants to protect his image as a tough guy in his own country, that could be, you know, handled. But I, I, I agree with Oksana that he, he, there's no indication that he's going to take any of these off ramps or opportunities to de-escalate and, and save face. So I, I don't have a very optimistic outlook on what's going to happen in the next couple of months, but I agree it's not going to be until after the Olympics. Um, yeah, I, I sort of I had a very similar point in that uh, the Russian, uh, both Putin and other Russian interlocutors have at every stage sort of done things in ways 
uh, made statements and so forth that preclude off-ramps, right? They've been cutting these off-ramps off one by one uh, all, all along from including the very kind of insulting way that the demands were presented in December, right? Uh, the, 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 the sort of, here's a draft agreement, take it or leave it, right? This is not the way diplomacy is conducted. And we've really, when I saw that, it made me think, oh, they're not really doing, wanted, they're not interested in diplomacy. This is for show. This is like a, a, a thing that they can later point to, whether it's for international audiences or domestic audiences, say, hey, we tried talking, they wouldn't agree to our, 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 our very reasonable proposal. And so, so that to me is, uh, is, is very concerning. The other thing that's very concerning is that uh, for any leader, if you keep threatening to do something and then backing off and not doing it, you eventually, you know, the cry wolf syndrome comes in, right? Yeah, you lose credibility uh, for future uh, threats. And so at, at, a, at some point, you know, if, you, if Putin doesn't get much of anything or only gets things that they've openly declared are not their priorities, like, you know, locations of missile systems or other things that are sort of tertiary goals that got thrown into the, these proposals, then, uh, and then they just kind of send all their troops home. Well, is anybody gonna pay attention in the next time? Right, so, so to me, the only, Potential, and this is something that uh, the only potential off-ramp that could work has to come not from the West, but really from Ukraine. And this is something that I think the Ukrainian government is politically not not really tenable. But it's basically to announce their self kind of self Finlandization, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if if they say, okay, we're going to be neutral. We're really going to be neutral. We're going to kick out all of the, you know, the NATO and all this, and and uh, we're gonna we're just going to focus on our own internal affairs and somehow make it credible, um, which is another whole other thing. Then maybe that could be something where uh, the Russian leadership says, "Oh, okay, well we got what we wanted. We're going home." Right? But there's so it's that's so unlikely for all sorts of political reasons. Um, um, and having to do not just with Ukrainian domestic politics, but also trust between, let's say, Ukraine and, and Russia, right? Uh, that that I just, it just seems very, I'm, it also, you know, I'm, I'm pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm going to get to some questions here. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's two questions that are uh, related to uh, public opinion in Ukraine. So the first one um, asks, are there any public opinion data available from the Donbass region that might suggest that public opinion is shifting? Are, or any anecdotal evidence that allegiances might be changing in Donbass. Thank you so much. I assume that means um, toward, toward the pro-Western side. A uh, related question is, um, Russia wants a land quarter to Crimea. That part of Ukraine was part of Russia in 2022 when it was added to Ukraine when Ukraine joined the USSR. Are the people of that region still loyal to Russia and would a plebiscite produce a choice to rejoin Russia? So uh, perhaps Oksana would be best position. Okay, yeah, sure. So let me address uh, both of these. On the Donbass, uh, public opinion, um, the Zoys in Berlin has been doing surveys, both in the government-controlled and non-government-controlled parts of Donbass. 
the surveys from the non-government control part, I mean, there are, you know, sociologists raise all sorts of concerns, you know, given that it's like telephone surveys in these essentially authoritarian kind of quasi-states, like how much we can trust it. But the broader pattern is that there is now much more difference, even though they've done it over several years, there is now much more difference in opinion between the government, Ukrainian government controlled part of Donbass, which did shift to become somewhat more pro-Ukrainian, right? I mean, it's still obviously not the same as in central and western part of the country, but the trajectory since 2014 has been, you know, we can say sort of more anti-Russian, right? And there is growing rift, according to the surveys, between the government and non-government controlled parts, right? So this Donbass, where it's now divided, there is really no rival reason behind that line, right? Like this line is pretty much arbitrary. This is where the fighting stopped. It doesn't divide any sort of macro regions, historical regions, but again, sort of by virtue of being now for since 2014 controlled, you know, by very different political arrangements, right? Uh, we do see kind of growing difference in opinion there. So there is indication again like these opinions i don't want to overstate this point i mean of course there is still regional difference in opinions in ukraine and we can also as we have seen before you know opinions are subject to change right like it's not sort of set in stone like you know the different factors that happen influence how people think about these things but certainly now um there is more pro-ukrainian opinion even in donbass and that sort of brings me to the second question like what is you know this region's historical effect also connection to russia and so forth the short answer to this question is no there isn't there is not going to be some kind of massive support for you know Russian rule and let me elaborate a little bit if you remember going back to 2014 this idea of so-called Novorossiya right a new Russia uh, was a plan back in the day so in other words this idea that you know because exactly Euromaidan uprising was perceived as kind of illegitimate but substantial parts of the population in the south and the east and you know following Crimea annexation the so-called Russian spring scenario right that essentially there will be groundswell you know, kind of for pro-Russian against the quote-unquote fascist post-Euromaidan government, and that failed everywhere except for in Donetsk and Luhansk and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk, right? And since then, the opinions in the territories have shifted even more. And there are completely different incentives even for the local elites than there were in 2014, right, when the Ukrainian state essentially disintegrated for a period of time, kind of following the fall of Yanukovych, right, the police kind of disappeared, you know, and the even people who had pro-Ukrainian opinions back then were afraid to come out on the street because they were getting beaten up and police stood by, right? So, so that's a completely different scenario now. So I think, you know, both, and so if Russia did have this kind of move against these regions, I think what we might see, we might see potentially some small pro-Russian demonstrations and much larger pro-Ukrainian demonstrations, like, right, it's sort of say the Russian troops were amassed around the urban centers and would be waiting for some sort of groundswell to create a pretext for it. So, you know, the short answer to that second question is like, no, I don't think that's likely and here are some of the reasons I would think it would be important to keep in mind as to why. Anybody else want to add anything to that? Okay then um, here are two questions I'm going to group together under the rubric of uh, hybrid warfare. What do you all know about any disinformation or divisive messaging happening on social media in Ukraine or for that matter I would add Russia? Um, what effect is it having if any? And how do you view cyber attacks in the post-Cold War order? Russia can launch attacks without direct attribution. What future do you see with this? Who would like to take Well, I can, I can talk about cyber attacks a bit and uh, go for it. Less, less familiar with what's going on in, in terms of info war within Ukraine. Um, so I think cyber attacks are going to, you know, uh, are going to be part of any uh, larger operation. Yeah, so there will be an effort to um, kind of immobilize uh, society, but also communications, uh, which may be important for uh, if, 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 if you can um, 
make it very difficult or impossible to communicate from Kiev to, uh, you know, say Eastern uh, Eastern cap uh, capitals in Eastern Ukraine, uh, or between military units and so forth, you could really d uh, do a lot to disorganize resistance uh, before before it really has a chance to get going, and that helps any any invasion that, that comes along. You also uh, potentially demoralize the population if things like banking, uh, perhaps utilities, I don't mean, are, are, are disabled. And we saw some, you know, there was, a, there was a cyber attack already on Ukraine a few weeks ago that, uh, um, you know, it seemed, initially it seemed like it was kind of amateurish, but there were later indications that perhaps it, the amateur bit was a cover to insert kind of malicious code that could then be activated later on to actually disable all sorts of these things that I was just talking about. Uh, now that was noticed. So theoretically, the malicious code has been removed, but you never know if maybe that was the malicious code that was meant to be noticed and there's some other, right? Like you just don't know how many levels down this could go. So, so yeah, I think cyber attacks are definitely part of the Russian uh, toolkit. Uh, in this scenario, but also, I mean, we've seen them in Britain. I think the questioner had uh, asked a broader question about overall, and and we've seen Russian cyber attacks uh, of all kinds on you know both both in terms of espionage uh, and and more you know kind of probing kind of potential disabling uh, uh, feelers in you know on even U.S. infrastructure. So so yeah, I think I think that's definitely something to be concerned about. Uh, Oksana, do you want to say anything about um, this? Just maybe like one point. I think it sort of brings, I mean, I can speak to the specifics of the cyber attacks. I just, you know, I don't know enough about it. But I mean, to me, it sort of brings this broader dilemma that I think Russia has versus kind of going big versus go, going small, right? Because if you go small, the consequences are potentially less, right? Like you can disrupt, you know, engage in cyber attacks, some plausible deniability, right? Like is the West going to do anything about it? Maybe not. But that also doesn't really accomplish your broader goals, right? Like, yes, they can sort of create pain in the, in the neck for Ukrainian government and the public, but it's not going to lead sort of to these big wins, right? As in like no NATO, no training, right? Like geopolitical sphere of influence. So is this really kind of worse, right? But, and then obviously, the, but the more extensive the moves, right? The potentially the bigger gains, also the bigger costs, right? So we, I think we have this kind of three moving pieces, right? The kind of the gains, the costs, and the probable response, you know, both from Ukraine and the West, right? That are all a little bit in flux, right? And I think that's part of the broader calculus. Here's um, a pair of questions uh, about military matters. So first one asks, before 1989, Romanian and Yugoslav military doctrine said that to resist the Soviet occupation and installation of a new communist regime, the Soviets would have to send in an occupation force equal to 5% of the population of the occupied country. Based on the World War II examples, does that calculation apply in Ukraine? Second question, in the case of a full-scale invasion, would Washington back a Ukrainian insurgency? Does the flat terrain of most of Ukraine make this course of action implausible? Um, well, I, can, I can take the second one. I'm not sure. I, I, the first one's probably also to me, and I'm not sure what it's probably beyond my, my level of knowledge of uh, uh, the, the, that, that specific uh, uh, um, you know, number of horses and so forth. Uh, but in terms of Washington, I mean, they've, they've, I think it depends on how things are playing out. 
but Washington is certainly their statements have been made to that effect that they may do that. Right. I think I think that quite reasonably uh, Western leaders are trying to preserve, you know, some uh, leeway uh, in terms of what they would or wouldn't do uh, in, you know, President Biden's somewhat inartfully worded statement about, you know, incursions and invasions and so forth was actually, if you actually look at what he said, what, what he was trying to, to accomplish, he was basically said, saying that there are, you know, there are multiple options on the table and a lot of it depends on what Russia does, which is, you know, quite a, quite a reasonable uh, position to hold. Um, so I think that the, uh, there's certainly, a, uh, if the, it's, U.S. isn't going to spearhead a resistance, but if there is a resistance, I think there would be a lot of pressure domestically, uh, you know, within the U.S. And, and internationally to provide support. Uh, how effective it would be? Um, I mean, it's not Afghanistan, right? It's the, the terrain, the terrain uh, in Afghanistan did help uh, in terms of making it making a resistance much more effective and hiding out and so forth. Uh, but I think that uh, there could certainly be uh, uh, occupation could cer certainly be made quite painful for Russian forces through, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, whether it's through IEDs or, you know, through some kind of, you know, through through attacks that by guerrilla type forces uh, that could you know, blend back into the population. So, so I think that the, I think it would be less a question of bands hiding out in the, in the, you know, marshes or whatever, and more just people who uh, find ways to uh, live their normal lives as if, and then also conduct, uh, you know, some kind of attacks, but uh, how effective, you know, I don't know. Carol. I think it would be difficult to impossible for the Biden administration to send in any kind of ground force, even limited. Maybe they could compel some other NATO allies to be the boots on the ground. But I think that's a scenario that the West really wants to avoid, largely because of the you know, tremendous blow, the withdrawal from Afghanistan dealt the Biden administration. I think unfairly. I mean, this was going to be, I think it was actually a best case scenario, how it played out. There, There's no way you can evacuate an entire country from, you know, this ragtag band of, you know, medieval, you know, savages. <laughs> and in good time, when you're surrounded by the Taliban forces and worse Islamist you know, enemies of the West. The, the Biden administration has taken on responsibility for this, which was actually created by, you know, three or four previous administrations. He's the only one of the past four presidents who, after vowing to get us out of Afghanistan, actually did it. The, you know, the consequences and the, the damage done because of, you know, the videotaped, you know, televised chaos and, and death. And you know, the, the fact that they only lost 13 
military servicemen in that couple of weeks of you know massive you know imperiled operations i i thought was astounding but because of the legacy of that withdrawal i don't see the biden administration going into any ground war short of you know an invasion of the united states it's just the costs are just too high Uh, a couple questions about uh, NATO. Um, if in the Baltic states, NATO membership was necessary to secure membership in the EU, is the primary issue for Putin Ukraine's pursuit of EU membership? Is the NATO issue camouflage for stopping association agreements with the EU as in 2013-14? Yes, that was, that was the trigger for this whole eruption between Ukraine and Russia. Yanukovych scuttled an agreement that the Ukrainian parliament had with the European Union for, again, a path to membership in the EU. It was you know, estimated to be 20 years before they would qualify for inclusion in the alliance. There was not even any discussion at the time of NATO membership. That was you know, beyond meeting the you know, qualifications for joining the EU. The, there was pretty strong domestic support for that path to the associated associated membership in or association with the European Union. And, you know, Putin called Yanukovych to Moscow, told him, get, you know, get off that train. He did. And that was what triggered the Maidan rebellion. And you know, th this has clearly been a ruse, you know, saying that NATO was coming to get the Russians, you know, from that moment onward, it's, I don't, I don't understand Putin's strategy because when you fear something that doesn't exist, you know, a threat that doesn't exist and is very far in the future, you present yourself as either paranoid or, or more vulnerable than you should look. I mean, they've got you know, way more resources and defenses than Ukraine has or would ever have. I think just, if I can just add, you know, I, I agree with what Carol was saying. I think that's actually very important because it also goes to Dima's earlier point, which I also agree with, that any kind of offer from Ukraine, right? Like, if, if it's not just about NATO, let me put it this way, right? And I think the 2013 events about this association and free trade agreement is very good illustration of this, right? NATO was nowhere in the text of this agreement. It was like supposed to be trade agreement, right? Russia supposedly was concerned about NATO, and yet first it starts started a trade war against Ukraine already in the summer of 2013, and then paid Yanukovych like $15 billion, essentially, right, to not sign this agreement. So, so in Ukraine, there is very strong belief, and I think rightly so, that for Russia, when it comes to Ukraine, it's much more than just NATO membership, right? It's Ukraine is not sort of this, which makes the scenarios of like Finlandization or sort of Austria and the Cold War really not applicable here, because, you know, for Putin, for, you know, for whatever reasons, because of his, you know, KGB background, or his view on history or his personality, who knows what, right? Ukraine is something quite different, right? So any kind of sort of, I mean, I think in Ukraine, there is very little um, support for this idea that if we just sort of said, okay, we're not going to join NATO, that's going to be the end of, you know, sort of Russia trying to encroach in our affairs one way or the other, right? I mean, we can also bring sort of like precedent of constructing a more functioning democracy, anti-corruption and so forth, like, you know, we haven't been going into this, but I think this, so, so yes, so I think this EU, uh, incident with the trade agreement in 2013, I think is a good illustration that it's really not just about NATO when it comes to Putin and Ukraine. I think uh, I'll just add that 
I mean, the, it's again, I'll go back to my what I said about the goal. I think it's overlapping, right? There is NATO is one thing, but then Ukraine's orientation is a second thing. Uh, and and so so the both goals in this case are working together, but in, in 2014, it was the, the one and not the other. Um, there's also uh, what I wanted to add to what Carol was saying is that I think we shouldn't, uh, you know, discount paranoia. <laughs> um, because I think there is a level of paranoia. Um, and in 2014, that paranoia was uh, connected to, to not so much, I mean, the uh, signing of the association agreement, not signing the association agreement, that was sort of a, from, I think from Moscow's perspective was a, we're, we're you know, a tug of war over Ukraine's orientation. But the removal of Yanukovych by, you know, popular protest was interpreted in Moscow as a regime change organized by the West. And, you know, I mean, the rhetoric was there, but I think uh, at the time I was trying to, I remember sort of sitting actually at a conference in Moscow in uh, very shortly thereafter in, in that spring, trying to, are they, do they actually believe this or is this just rhetoric? And I was trying to sort of parse this out. And over, you know, you know, fairly soon thereafter, and over time, more and more so, I become convinced that they really do believe this, right? That the the idea that Washington is organizing these regime change campaigns uh, in order to, uh, and and the whole popular protest is just, you know, something that's spun up by the CIA or whoever, uh, and then they're, uh, and then you know, if they don't work, then we bring in military force as, you know, as the U.S. did in, you know, Libya, wherever, you know, all sorts of places. And so, and so they perceived the removal of Yanukovych as an act of that type and also connected it to the 2011-2012 protests in Moscow and elsewhere in Russia, which were also seen as of that type. And so you have this fear of, uh, for, for regime survival, and that if, you know, if this succeeds in Ukraine and there are no consequences, then they will be, they, the, the West, will be emboldened and will try it again over here. So I think that's kind of a, a logic uh, for that that doesn't require NATO at all, uh, but is per perfectly rational from the paranoid Russian perspective. That's a good point. Just because we might think it's absurd doesn't mean that other people don't actually believe it. Um, so here's another question. Uh, about NATO that also broadens the discussion to other parts of the post-Soviet region. I was struck by the astute comment that NATO was already in Ukraine without Ukraine being in NATO. The same was arguably true in Georgia in 2008. Comparing the situations, what have the actors learned? It doesn't specify which actors here, but presumably both sides. Um, and for the political scientists among us, how important are relative power and interest versus other factors that people discuss, especially ideological and leadership explanations? Ooh, a lot here. Um, uh, okay, so on in terms of learning, I think that you know I th I think there you know it's it's probably too late, but I think a lot of leaders in the in the West may regret the Bucharest uh, uh, declaration, uh, right? The the and the this idea, I mean, and that sort of created this catch 22 in a way for Ukraine and Georgia, right? That it was, at the time it was thought, oh, okay, well, 
we don't actually want Ukraine and Georgia to be members of, of NATO, but we can't tell them that we don't want them to be members of NATO. So we're just going to say and make this declaration at some point in the future when things are better and your countries, right? And, the, and then you can be members of NATO. Um, and that was the way it was, it was meant by, you know, the NATO uh, allies. And it was the way it was understood, I think, in, in Kiev and Tbilisi. It was not the way it was understood in Moscow, right? Uh, in, in Moscow, it was understood as a promise and based on past history where, you know, promises had been made and then over time fulfilled, you know, to Baltics, to, to Poland and just Czech Republic and so forth. Uh, and so what that created for Russia was a finite, from their, from their perspective, a finite vin window uh, during which they could affect the situation before there were those security guarantees. So I think that there's now uh, some recognition that this was maybe a, a strategic error to make that kind of declaration. You know, you either, uh, you know, either you provide, a, uh, you know, a membership on a timeline uh, or, which also creates its own problems because there's still that window, but at least a narrower window, or you don't do it. But uh, so I think that that's a lesson that has been learned. Uh, there has the other big lesson that's I think been learned over time is that uh, the the idea that Russia is not really a strategic partner of the West was a uh, a lesson that had you know it took time to learn right uh, and and after the Georgia War uh, it wasn't fully learned uh, for various reasons and. Um, and and and, uh, and I think maybe even Russia hadn't fully made that choice yet, although it was pretty far since the Munich speech. It was pretty far on that side. But then, um, uh, but then you know after after uh, Crimea and Donbass, obviously it was learned. So, so that, that's I think uh, two key lessons. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the broader lesson here is that you try to ignore Russia, but Russia will ensure that it gets your attention. I don't know if Washington has learned that yet, because because we maybe this time, right? It's a it's a lesson that we observers have 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 learned, yeah. but perhaps the policymakers have not. Uh, yeah, because they keep saying we're we're just going to focus on China, right? And and that, that never that never seems to quite quite work out. Uh, Oksana or Carol, do you want to uh, talk about the, this issue about um, NATO being in Ukraine, but Ukraine not being in NATO? Um, yes, in a different way. I think you know the West has learned its lesson, but far too late. I mean, we're 14 new countries to NATO since 1999. There were all kinds of different considerations for which countries, you know, to admit first and how. Um, I think uh, Emmy Sorot's book that just came out a couple months ago, Not One Inch, you know, recalling the promises that were made to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch into well, at the time they were talking about East German territory, but because the Soviet Union was still intact, there weren't these other free states that immediately wanted NATO membership when they were, you know, independent. You know, the, her argument in this book is that they tried to impose a one-size-fits-all model for admission to the alliance, which didn't work. I mean, the, the Baltic states 
clearly needed some defensive backdrop because they had you know virtually no forces of their own they had this history of you know successive occupations and you know enslavement basically they they were admitted you know fairly soon but not until after Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary the the alliance seems to have just kind of rolled with the punches in terms of who they were going to admit and how and when and you know, the, maybe now they can develop a strategy for what needs to be done to qualify for admission. But, you know, we're already down to the last few former Soviet republics that aren't already in NATO. And uh, here's uh, just a couple of questions. And, and uh, this might be the last um, set of questions I'll ask today uh, about domestic politics within Russia. Um, because Carol, you mentioned that you think one of Putin's motivations has to do with domestic politics. So this question asks, given Russia's social health slash COVID and economic issues, could Putin's waiting game cause a serious morale problem within the military or the general population? For how long will they be patient? And a related question is, uh, what are some of the quote, extreme sanction unquote options that Biden has available? Um, this news carries a you'll be sorry message, but no details. So um, while Putin may have his want you be looking um, toward the West a lot of the time. He's also looking inward and also thinking about his longevity, his legitimacy, his popularity. Um, so how is he um, balancing these, these two sets of considerations? Yeah, maybe I'll just start just a couple of thoughts on this. Um, I think, you know, in general, of course, even, even if it's an authoritarian country, I think public opinion does play a role, right? Because obviously if an autocrat for whatever reason became unpopular, that creates, you know, problems for an autocrat. So in that sense, right, like one could say, I don't think that's what's going on, but I think one could say that say, you know, with the economic difficulties, right, with COVID and so forth, some sort of like foreign adventure gets potentially an autocrat greater support. I really don't think that that's, really what's going on in Russia. It's sort of hard to imagine, as you know, already mentioned briefly, there isn't, doesn't, doesn't, there isn't a public support for some kind of large-scale military operation against Ukraine, right, like for what purpose. So it seems like, I mean, um, I, I wouldn't, you know, say that domestic politics doesn't matter, but I don't think this is one of these sort of clear-cut relationships, as in like, you know, Putin is having certain economic difficulties, right, and that would be the way to increase popularity. I don't think so. I mean, again, it goes sort of to like what is really Putin thinking, and I think here it goes to really the small size of the decision circle, right, because we don't know who, if anybody, he listens to. I was on the panel yesterday, um, and you know, an expert in Russia was saying that Putin apparently primarily listens, listens to like other KGB types, right? So we can all talk about you know various facts as they exist, as we understand them. But if that's not how Putin understands them, right? Like that matters; it has consequences. Um, so again, um, you know, that's uh, I would maybe leave it at that with the domestic politics angle. I can I can add a couple of things on the. Uh both on the narrowness of the decisions-making circle and the morale thing. Uh, I think the, the military morale is really good in Russia now. I mean, we've seen 10 years now of great more funding, more respect, uh, better living conditions, better serving conditions, right? They, um, so, so I think, and, and this perception among the more patriotically inclined type, uh, you know, population, uh, who are the ones who are more likely to be serving in the military, that, you know, Russia is, is back. So I think in that sense, it would take, uh, I mean, uh, 
the morale for the population, you know, if there are serious casualties in Ukraine, that could be a different story. Uh, but as far as morale, military morale, I think it's quite high. Uh, I just want to add one thing, what Oksana was saying on the decision-making circle, because I think this is very important, that uh, COVID has played a role here uh, because Putin has isolated himself uh, since because of the pandemic and fears of, of getting, getting sick, uh, much more so than he ever had before. So the set of people that are, have access to him and are able to talk to him is much narrower now. And it's primarily, as I think, uh, you know, as someone just suggested, it's primarily security types, you know, the Patrushevs of the world. Uh, and the people that used to have a moderating influence on him from the economic circle, you know, the uh, people like Kudrin or Siluanov, who could sort of highlight, well, okay, Patrushev said you could do this and this, and but think of these economic costs that, that that message may not be getting through to him as much as it did. Again, I mean, I, don't, I have no personal, this is just what I'm hearing from Moscow from, from people I talk to. And so, and that's worrying, uh, obviously, because it, it you know, uh, uh, the, the narrower the circle of decision makers, the narrower types, uh, the fewer types of information getting to a leader making decisions, the higher uh, the extent of misperception uh, and the higher likelihood of making a mistake. I'd just like to add, I think it's hard to judge the morale of the Russian people right now because I think they're more tuned out than, you know, not on board with an invasion or by, you know, vehemently opposed to one. There, Maxime Trudelubov had an article or, you know, column in the Russia file a couple of days ago saying that, you know, the cafes are full, everybody's out, you know, enjoying themselves, violating the COVID restrictions left and right, and that there's no sense of an impending crisis in the country. And as for morale in the military, I totally agree that, you know, with all the investments that have been made in the last decade, the officer's corps and the command structure is, you know, pretty well taken care of. I wonder, though, about the tens of thousands of, you know, rank and file recruits or, you know, conscripts out in the depths of winter in tents or, you know, unheated container volume. How can they sustain, you know, week after week, month after month? And I, I don't think the, you know, the food and the you know, diversions are any better than they were, you know, years ago for, you know, the, the infantry, the, the people well, who will be thrown into the conflict when that happens. Just, just add one thing directly on that. Uh, you, got, you have to remember that the bulk of the combat forces are now not conscripts. Uh, they're, they're, they're contract soldiers, right? Conscripts are serving primarily in support roles. Uh, so that, I think, uh, is, is a big part of, of the change that's happened in the last 10 years. Exciting. Just, very quickly, just jump on this, just also to add to what has been said. I think um, Carol's point on the public opinion, right? I think what we see from the public opinion, uh, that at least what I've seen recently, that uh, the main sort of sentiment in Russia seems to be that they don't believe it's going to happen, right? So it's like the cafes are full because they, you know, maybe they believe the official story that this is just training, right? Or maybe, or maybe it's both things. Like, what is the point of doing this, right? Like, you have to have some sort of casus belly, right? Like, 
like if you know Ukraine has not attacked Russia, right? Like NATO, the Ukraine is not NATO, right? I mean, yes, Putin may believe all of these things, but from the point of view of your regular Russian person, and maybe that also goes to the you know morale in the army, like what exactly is it? Like, why would you roll across the border into Kharkiv, into Donbass, and like wherever else? Like for what exact purpose, right? And I think we have seen some something we didn't talk about maybe when it came to cyber warfare, kind of manufacturing of some kind of pretext. I think that would be really necessary because, you know, just to sort of give an order, okay, NATO didn't agree to this treaty that we wrote, therefore we are gonna now like, you know, bombing Ukraine. Like that seems completely, you know, like how do you sell it to this to the same, you know, whether they're conscripts or whoever and the public, right? And then it's sort of a thing, the danger is that there are, you know, has been this talk that like chemical weapons are brought in the Donbass, right? Like Ukraine has no, no, the Ukrainian government is not suicidal. They're not planning any kind of military operation, either in Donbass, you know, or against Russia. But if this were to be somehow like decision was made, right? And then you would need to manufacture some kind of pretext like this, right? And I think for now, the Russian public just basically doesn't think it's likely. It seems like most people, you know, in the cafes because they think this is just not gonna happen. And actually we see that in Ukraine too. I mean, people are out and about. I mean, yes, there is a sense of unease. But I think there's also kind of like incredulity, right? If that's the word, like, would they really be as crazy as to do something like this? Right, so um, the wise people say that predictions are always difficult, especially when they're about the future. Uh, <laughs> and I think yet, uh, uh, Dima, I think you're on the record with a semi-prediction that if there is invasion, it will occur after the Olympics. Uh, so you're on the record with that. Does anybody else want to make any predictions of something that's completely unpredictable? I think from my kind of overall commentary, it's like I would sort of err on the side that it's more likely not to happen than to happen. Like I wouldn't, you know, obviously would go as far as saying that it's not gonna happen, but it seems to me that, you know, it's, there is hope there, let's put it this way. Maybe with this pregnant pause, as we wait for the Olympics to be over, there can be some sort of diffusing of interest or attention to the threat of an invasion, and that might give Putin a little more face-saving off-ramp to, you know, say it's kind of you know it's settled. It's not an immediate need to go in and put out this Western threat. So here's an interesting thought: the most repressive authoritarian Olympics ever will uh, bring the world together in a, in a <laughs> moment of harmony, uh, thereby uh, avoiding war. Not a prediction. Just a thought. Okay, uh, well, uh, thank you uh, all for uh, appearing on this panel and sharing your insights. Uh, there's a lot of food for thought and I hope our audience is well-informed. So thank you again for joining us. <laughs>